As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Hi. Wow, that was a sultry intro. It's it's uh it's us. It's two girls, one ghost. Two girls. The Keepers of the Night. One ghost. The ghoul gang. The ghoul gang. It's us, we're here. And we are your ghostesses, that's Corinne. Hi. And I'm Sabrina, and we have a very, very special guest today. It is my husband. Nick! Nick! It's your moment! What's <laughs> I think he did that last did, time. Did you yeah, expect that? Did. did you expect that? I mean, I, think, I didn't expect you to double dip the what's up, but I like it. It's now your signature. It's your signature. Yeah. It's your sign on. It's very spooky. Guys, so. How are you? It doesn't matter how I am. How are <laughs> you guys? We're married. You're married. We're meowed. Meowed. Oh, Leia finally Wait, has a dad. Does that mean you're going to get another cat? What? No. What a weird jump. You did say. <laughs> you were the one who said it. There is a. I know. I was a, like. The the fact that you said meowie, and I was like, oh, maybe there's some talk here. There is a group of people, mainly your guys' fans and Sabrina's mom and my mom, who are really pushing the second cat. I think it's just a battle against time, if anything. And I'm losing the battle. Yeah, you're going to lose it real quick. Yeah. (laughs) It's been happening for a long... It's been years. I told him I'm just going to go get a cat because now I'm his wife and he can't divorce me. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. (laughs) And another cat is really not a bad thing to bring back. You don't have to live with that second cat. That's true. I don't have to live with any cat. Okay, let's move on to something much (laughs) happier. (laughs) Guys, talk about your wedding. Let's hear all the details. And then also we need to hear about your mini honeymoon at the Stanley Hotel with our parents. Our parent-driven mini mini moon. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's the priority. I mean, our wedding was great and lovely, but like... Not only is Nick going to have to get a second cat someday, he is now forced to go to all the haunted spooky locations with me. That was our mini moon. So we went to the Stanley and it was so cool. The pictures look amazing. It was so much fun. And we did a ghost tour. We drank drinks in the Cascades bar. 
We said hello to Lucy and Pierre. Was the ghost tour scary? What was it like? Oh my gosh, it was scary. So uh, shout out to, well, first of all, shout out to our tour guard, Yaram. She heard of our podcast. Multiple people there heard of our podcast and I felt like a little bit of a celebrity. Oh my gosh. It's because he covered it in episode number one. I know. Nick actually, we, Nick's parents were joking. They were like, Nick, you should call pretending to be their PR person and be like, hey, did you know like Sabrina of Two Girls, One Ghost is going to come? But he ended up not doing that. And have a list of demands of typically when she enters a space, she requires, you know, only orange (laughs) M&Ms. Uh, yeah, everyone around her surround are wearing ghost uh, outfits. It's, it's has a long. She's a, she a long rider. Yeah. I mean, wait, but hold on. This isn't a bad idea, Nick. Now that you're married into Sabrina and the podcast, I think you do need a job. <laughs> Was taking her last name not enough? Oh. Okay, so Sabrina has lost the battle of the last name and yeah. lost the battle of a second cat. So something's got to oh, give. Oh, thank you. So, oh, so is that is that written in stone? She's lost the battle. I've not the lost cat? the battle. Let's be clear about that. I think a couple days before we got married, Corinne texted me and said, "You're almost a Deanna Roga ghost, something like that." And I was like, "I changed Boy. your entire name. You lost all all identity." Yeah, I was like, "There's very little left of me after this." <laughs> He's right? no longer Nick. <laughs> He's just ghost boy. I was yep. like, let's change your first name too. <laughs> I'm stripped of a name of an identity. And, and then you texted me and you're like, I'm a ghost girl. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Finally a ghost well, gal. Well, this is legit. You kind of are a ghost gal right now. And it feels great. It's your shining moment. I feel like we need to insert, you know, like at the football games, now that there's no audience, they like audience fans. Yes. Um, They like insert the like. <laughs> Like rambunctious yelling and the screaming and the clapping when plays go. I feel like we need to insert that right now for Nick because he's here. And the crowd goes wild. Amazing. The Stanley was so much fun. We did a tour and it was informative just like, you know, about the history of the hotel. And also it was kind of spooky. So we went down to the first part to walk you through it a little bit. We went to the music hall. Yaram took us down into the basement and there's this like mirror there that apparently was gifted to Stanley, but never knew who it was gifted to him by, but he like really liked it. And people in the hotel would stay like whatever room it was in, the guests would like come to Stanley the next day and be like, Hey, um, I don't like that mirror. It always feels like someone's watching me. And he was just like, Oh, you're being silly. So he'd move it to another room and that guest would complain of the same thing. And so eventually it was moved to the basement of this music hall and they have people take photos in the mirror and they've gotten so many really terrifying photos the one oh i have so many chills there was one photo she showed us of this was just i mean i guess i think was just taking a picture and she has a flash on and in the picture there are like eight faces surrounding her and one that kind of looks like it's almost caressing the side of her face like looking directly in like this and it was it It was what was really cool was that with you know with Everyone taking photos of everything these days, it's, they had so many stories, but then to back it up with photos. So she would just whip out her phone and show us. So it was very much like, okay, this feels pretty real. Yeah. Uh, And then we're in some concrete dark basement. That is so She she told me that she had a, that everyone who works there, they have like this like Google drive and anytime like someone from their tours or someone sends them a photo from the Stanley, they just add it to the Google Drive. So they just have tons and tons of ghost photos or ghosts caught on camera from people all over the world who came to visit the Stanley. Just- so they're a dream guest. Anyone who is an employee there, like that is who we want at our sleepovers, <laughs> <Yes>. campfires. <laughs> our exactly. next wedding. Yeah. We want access. 
It was interesting. We were speaking with the the person working at the front desk, Kristen, who was awesome. She who also us- listens to our podcast. So shout out to Kristen. <laughs> oh wow. She gave me her numbers. I'm going to text her and be like, hey, we're talking about you on the next episode. (laughs) But she was awesome. She also gives tours. And so she gave us a ton just because the tour is, you know, 45 minutes. So we ended up just standing at the front desk for an hour, an hour hour with wine. And she just gave us all of the stories that we couldn't get on the tour. And she, what a dream. Oh, it was awesome. And she's really good at, at kind of balancing facts with these stories and kind of maybe why something like this would happen. So (gasps) it felt like a history lesson. She was the coolest person I've met in a very long time. Sorry, Nick. Um, (laughs) no, but she's so because it was a super long time time ago that she met you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Right. Well, granted it is quarantine. So I haven't been meeting many people at all uh, (laughs) in the last six months, but, um, no, her career, and I'm going to butcher this. I'm so sorry, Kristen, but, like, she st- she used to study, like, archaeological research and, like, examining bones of – I can't remember where. She was yeah. in Czech Republic, I think she mm-hmm. said. And she was, like, studying the, like, DNA within the bones of all these remains from, like, ancient oh, times. Wow. So she was just, like, super, super educated and, like, just hearing her talk about her own life, too, was – mesmerizing and we just stood up there for so long and i asked her because her her you know primary job is historically based archaeology (laughs) and digging i thought you know how do how does someone like you handle the supernatural and and ghosts and everything because Mm -hmm. they almost seem counterintuitive right and she said that she is a skeptic but a believer she kind of wants i think like most people well most people are open to it want to have that experience so they can mm-hmm. finally, you know, mm-hmm. like draw the line in the sand of, yep, I'm a believer. But again, she just adds so much history to it that made it yeah. just feel that much more factual. I mean, even with the Google Drive, like she has access. To- well, okay. So there was another yeah, right. photo that was taken in like the, there's the underground cave tunnel system that used mm-hmm. to exist with underneath the entire hotel. But now after a multiple of them have caved in, only one of those tunnels exists still. And it's, like, literally just rock formation. And that's where the employees have to go every morning to, like, check in. And that's how they leave every night. That's very creepy. So it's, kind of creepy. But there's this one photo that was taken down there. And it's these girls taking a selfie. And on the in the rocks behind them is this, like, creepy, gremlin-y looking head and shoulder, like, climbing over the rocks behind them. Are you them. fucking kidding me? And it didn't look th- pleasant. It was 100% terrifying. I would quit. I would never work yeah. there. No. Yeah. And it's not like they only have to go there in the tours. They they have to go in there to clock in and clock out every yeah, day. Yeah, every day. And I'd be like, no, you'll just, I'm going in through the front door. You can see me when you see me. Right. Yeah. And Yaram said that the very first day that she started, when she was walking through there, all of the lights started flickering. Oh, my and God. And she, like, clocked out. And then she went was walking to her car, and all the lights in the parking lot started flickering. And she was just, like, terrified. 1,000% no. Like, yeah. why? How? <laughs> Who and are these brave people? There's so much history about the hotel, but what was fascinating was that everyone that we spoke to said outside of a couple uh, spirits who might be a little annoying or creepy, Mm -hmm. there aren't any like malin. There's no there's no malintent there. Yeah. And what they they kind of thought, well, why? Because typically something disastrous has to happen for spirit to be there or, you know, a demon or whatever that might be. And what they said was that the rock that the hotel is built on is quartz Quartz rock crystal, which apparently is a, a conductor for spirits. So it's mainly just spirits that are looking to kind of either continue what they were working on at, uh, while living or pass through. So it's a, it's a conductor so for hot spots for spirits. Yeah. But they said everyone's nice. That's something that any like future homeowner 
or a home builder, like you wouldn't really even think to consider. No. Like, right. What is this built on? Right. Right. Now it's a question we need to ask. Let's exactly. add it. I know. <laughs> add, it to, add it to the list. Forget, is it haunted? Did anyone die here? What is right. underneath? What is this <laughs> house built is upon? Is this a conductor? <laughs> yeah, then we, it was just fun. And, and there were a few times during the tour where, uh, you know, especially downstairs in the music hall, like in Lucy's room where Lucy who was like a squatter. She was a squatter and ended up like freezing to death basically in the building. Her spirit is known to be like in that music hall. And so Yaram turned all the lights off and gave us these like dumb, dumb lollipops that we held in our hand. And basically they played Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which is her favorite song. And it's like in the dark and this song is playing. And basically like Lucy apparently would like knock over your dumb, dumb or like throw it across the room if she's there. <gasps> and it's just scary just waiting in the mm-hmm. silence and oh then in God. the dark oh, with your no. hand like this. And... I hate that because it's like it's it's like an invitation. You have your yes, hand out. You're welcoming yeah. someone to my come cut to you. No, like, Nick's mom was like, "Go to Sabrina, go to Sabrina," and my mom was like, <laughs> "Lucy, come here, Lucy." Of course, yeah. When my Are mom heard about the cowboy uh, ghost who like hangs out on the fourth floor because he was like the doctor for all the kids who used to stay at the hotel, mm-hmm. my mom was like. Ooh, I want a cowboy to visit me. Send him to our room. Yeah, because usually he, apparently he like is very flirtatious and like will lean over women in bed and like kiss them. Oh. And my mom was like, ooh, I know who's staying in my room tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And during the, the, oh God, during the lollipop thing, I, my first thought was it felt, it it felt like they were fulfilling the, the need of people who wanted to be spooked. Rather mm-hmm. than just get the history, so I kind of thought, eh, probably not. But then again, when the lights are out and you're in it was a basement, so and, and the woman is inviting this this spirit to come, mm-hmm. I thought, okay, this is a little frightening. But right. a couple of people did have their their lollipops knocked over, mm-hmm. and then we did the same thing when we were in the tunnels. And I was kind of, you know, messing with the position of my hand to see how easy is this thing to knock over. I mean, it's it's a dum dum, right? Like you know. They're round at the bottom, but it was pretty sturdy. And in the tunnels, mine knocked over pretty soundly. And I was like, okay, all right, ready to wrap this thing up. And I felt a tickling behind my ear where my mask was and a tug on my hair. Oh my and gosh. I well, like- that was just me post-wedding, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. Ew. In the dark. In the dark, caves. in the cave. <laughs> you know, I mean, your parents were there, so you gotta, you gotta steal any kisses you can. Exactly. Romantic. Ro- romance, yep. <laughs> No, but but I felt that and I like kind of was just like in my head. I was like, no, like I'm probably just like imagining it. And then Yaram goes on to tell that a girl like had her hair tugged by Pierre in the tunnel. And I was just like, oh, my God, something was just tugging my hair. Like, what if it was Pierre? And I had my back to the cave where mm-hmm. where that photo was taken of the creepy creature. Oh, so, creepy. so it's very possible. So creepy. A ghost pulled my hair. I believe it. And the yeah. fact that there are so many spirits, so many stories and so many photographs to prove how often mm-hmm. spirits come forth. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I feel like it's anyone's guess who actually is interacting with you because it sounds like everything yeah. comes forward. Right. They enjoy playing. Oh, it was such a dream. We And then like Nick and I and his parents at midnight roamed around through the hotel, like the empty hotel, like snuck through. Did you wear your wedding dress and run through the halls? Like a oh, lady in white? <laughs> Hair in front of her face, yeah. Lady in white it. Candelabra in front. I did not, but I should have. Now I need to go back in time. (laughs) My mom made us masks, and Serena's masks are cat ghosts, Mm -hmm. and mine is the pattern of the carpet in The Shining. (gasps) Do you have pictures? I yeah. I have a I have a selfie of us wearing them. I think. Okay, we'll add add that to our Instagram because I I feel like everyone's gonna like that. (laughs) 
great idea. Um, but it was really interesting because obviously the the hotel is haunted independently of any sort of affiliation with The Shining. But really quickly, the Stephen King story, because um, we are huge, huge Stephen King fans. Huge. But he was living in Boulder at the time and having writer's block. So his wife sent him. Tabitha sent him to uh, the Overlook, excuse me, the the Stanley, which in in The Shining is the Overlook. And it was the day before they were closing down for the winter season, which is very much what happens to uh, Jack Torrance in The Shining. And he's up there and he was, well, he's an alcoholic, but he was drinking at that time. And he goes down to the bar and the bar was basically closed for the season. Mm -hmm. And so he talks to the bartender, you know, can I have a drink? And the bartender's name is Lloyd, which is the the bartender in the movie. And they basically just get drunk all night. He goes up to his room and he has a nightmare. Um, There are these hoses to put out fires all throughout the hallways. And he had a dream that the hose came to life and strangled his But like chasing and strangling, like trying to strangle his child. That's so dark. Very. Mm -hmm. But then we thought of, you know, he has probably one of the darkest minds out there. So of all people to get spooked by that. A dream, you know, who knows? But then he went out onto his he balcony. Like, he was yeah. staying in room 217. Which he like is couldn't go room. back to sleep after that nightmare and like went outside on his balcony smoking a cigarette. And by the time the sun came up, he had the entire outline for The Shining written. Are you kidding Isn't me? Isn't that awesome? Good Lord. It was Ugh. really cool. He's just so talented. So talented. We, and yeah, I mean, it was just a, it was a dream. It's, some, it's a place that I've wanted to go for years and years and years and years. Mm-hmm. And to go with my, my boo, my husband... And uh, and our parents after <laughs> yeah. our wedding was just you know it was so much fun. At night when you were sleeping, were there ever moments where you were really scared? Yes, yes. Because we stayed at the Stanley, right, in a room or in a, like a little, I guess cottage. A little cottage with yeah. with our our families. And I will say the entire even though weddings can be stressful and everything, we were so grateful for everything that happened. Every night that we were in Colorado, we both slept like rocks, and without a doubt, this was the one and only night that we were both. Very light sleepers, not really feeling well. We were in a king bed, and we might as well have been we in were like, like half sardines. of a twin. We were attached <laughs> to each other. And we slept with the bathroom light on because I was like, I am not walking in the dark to the bathroom. <laughs> so scary. all the mirrors. It was. Wait, what do you mean you were staying in a cabin? So it's where the workers that used to live there would stay, and they converted it into a, a, cottage. a cottage. So it was a, a three-bedroom you know, cottage with a, a deck and stuff like that. So Is there only was, one, or are there multiple on the grounds? There are a few. That one seems like the most... Accessible, I guess? Yeah, it's right there next to the Stanley. I think they have newer buildings that they've built since then that people can stay in, but... It's one of the original buildings to the stand. Oh my gosh! Oh, that makes it even creepier that you're you you're not like just walking out into carpeted hallways with staff around. Like you're yeah, isolated. you're just in, yeah, you're isolated on the grounds. Yeah, with Stanley looming over you. <sighs> yep. And they had a pet cemetery, and it wasn't a, <gasps> it wasn't gimmicky. It was a real pet cemetery where pets that used to live there or belong to people that worked there are buried. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh! Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. We have a photo of that. You can. Yeah, well. I can post that too. Did they have the maze? Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I swear, we were there during the day, and then we were wandering around at night at twelve thirty with my with my parents. And granted, maybe we had had a few glasses. We of had been overserved by Lloyd, and uh, <laughs> I, I honestly, my mom and I both swear that the hedges were three feet taller than they were earlier in the day. <laughs> Sabrina's shaking her head now. And, and I believe they've lost their minds. We just wouldn't let it go. We're like, I swear, oh my God, what is this? Why is it so, why are they so tall? 
<laughs> maybe maybe you're right. Maybe it was just Thank changing for, for the it. moment to try to entice you to come on in, explore get, a bit. I think trapped there. I think Nick's dad was the one who was trying to entice us to go in and explore. And I was like, it's too late. I'm going to bed. Yeah, yeah that's way too late. Yeah. Twelve thirty maze. Well, we would definitely recommend Estes Park is an incredible town that's a, a part of a Rocky uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. So beautiful scenery. The foliage was amazing. The hikes were awesome. And then obviously the Stanley is just something. Fabulous. Oh, <laughs> oh wow. Oh, my gosh. And new? now Nick is married to me. Oh, oh. Yay. <laughs> Nick, also, I'm enjoying this beard. You look great with oh, facial hair. Thing? I've, I've never seen you with facial hair before. I tried... To see what would happen during quarantine, and now quarantine is eight months long, and I'm still doing it. So thank you. It looks great. I think you could keep it. Thank you, Corinne. That is the nicest thing anyone's ever said. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Wow. I thought me inviting you to be on this podcast earlier was the nicest thing (laughs) anyone's ever said to you. It was until this. Okay. I mean, Nick was already in our Instagram comments and on Facebook just That's trying true. to get some I, votes. Yes. He's, he's been our I've biggest been troll. To, I've been, yeah, I have. I've been trying to gather <laughs> likes and pleas for years troll. now. <laughs> but I did tell him that when he came on, he had to, we had to put him to work. So for all of our listeners, we had Nick and also Corinne and I came up with some costume suggestions for Halloween this year. Yes. Because even if you're not going out and trick-or-treating or if you're not going to a party because pandemic and social distancing and being safe, you can still party at home with your roommates, with yourself. You can FaceTime friends. Zoom is a thing. So dress up. Don't let don't let yeah. the inability to go outside. Yeah, dress up and watch your, Hocus Pocus. Like yes. do some spooky things. It's going to be great. Yeah. And that ad was brought to you by the CDC. Keep your distance. <laughs> Go to cdc.gov COVID-19 for more information. Promo code TGOG. <laughs> Don't report us. One, one limitation that Serena put on my uh, Halloween costume ideas is that I couldn't present them as Stefan. So oh, I'm just going to do it normally. No, okay. okay. To be fair, he said he was going to, I interpreted that comment as that he was going to come on and be Stefan the entire time. And I said, can you just be yourself? People want to hear you. Which was okay. the second nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. <laughs> but now so you can be Stefan if you want. No, no, no. I didn't write it that way. So uh, <laughs> costume ideas. Traditional Halloween. If you want to be traditional, look no further. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Halloween's most basic costumes are witch, ghost, and zombie. That sounds more like a preview than it does yeah, Stefan. Yeah, it's a mix. Um, so, okay. Witch, ghost, zombie. Pretty straightforward. Pretty easy. Now. If you wanted to do 2020-based costumes, here are a couple easy ones for you. dying. Nick is just taking over our podcast. No, I like it. I'm here for it. We should do this more frequently. That's the new nicest thing anyway. (laughs) Um, Some obvious 2020 Halloween costume ideas. Tiger King. Yes. Love is Blind. A doctor. Because he wrote like a hundred options. But if you're going to be a doctor, be respectful of the situation. We don't want to see sexy frontline worker costumes. Let's be, let's be. um, No, just be the real heroes that are out there today. Pick a few. Now. Yeah, I've only got 15 to 75 more. Now, (laughs) if you want to get creative, look no further. Halloween's (laughs) hottest costume idea is the NBA Disney bubble. So as you know, the NBA was uh, quarantined in a in a bubble in Florida. So the costume idea, dress like your favorite Disney character, wear an NBA jersey over the costume, and then get like a bubble boy type bubble. 
and then fill that bubble with horror stories from living in the bubble, hotel keys, bad food, plastic utensils, those little mints you get from turndown service. DMs to like girls on the outside. Yeah. Well, that leads me to my second costume idea, the professional athlete girlfriends or side pieces. Now, because uh, all these athletes were quarantined, they had to sneak in their girlfriends and side pieces. And the most famous one was um, an NFL player tried to get his side piece to look like a player and or a worker of the team. So she was wearing big baggy clothes with the NFL team logo, uh, sunglasses, all that stuff. This is real? Yeah, that's a real thing. He is no longer with the team. (laughs) And is he no longer with his significant other if he... Because sounds like he got that caught with know. this. Oh, man. That I don't know. Uh, so that's an easy one. Professional athlete, uh, girlfriend or side piece. COVID-related costumes. You can be a custom face mask, right? You know, kind of like the ketchup and mustard ones, the, the ones that take up your whole body. Be a custom face mask. A forehead thermometer. And, of course, <laughs> the easiest, a, a common spin on a zombie. Just be toilet paper. Because if you remember, that was hard to come by. Yeah. I like the, the idea or how much room the thermometer gives to just horrible costumes that don't look right. Yeah. Yep. Just, They're not yep. going to fit. It's going to be hard to go to the bathroom. Is wow. That that, those are great. Those are great. Those are great. I went with like, wow, that's really creative. The one, I, I mean, I didn't have a ton, but the one that I went for was like, dress up as dad Kula. Oh, dad Kula. Wow. A dad vampire, dad Dracula. Nope, we got it the first time. I know, but I thought it was so punny and fun. <laughs> But Nick and I are planning to dress up as, because originally we were supposed to get married on Halloween. Mm -hmm. And so we are going to do, uh, or we want to do, Frankenstein's Bride and Frankenstein. The Bride of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And Frankenstein, that's so good. Oh, I'm so excited. Are you guys going to go full out? Like, are you going to do the hair, Sabrina? I have to. There's no other way. Yeah, you can't do half of it. No. And also, Nick, your uh, Disney NBA player actually mm-hmm. sparked an idea from me but stolen from the internet but i saw that people were using those like see-through clear plastic umbrellas the like bubble umbrellas oh, yeah. and then they were just fitting them around their waist and like putting some extra fabric and making it look like a snow globe and painting like little white dots around it Brilliant. so you could do oh. like a little disney you know when you go and you get the mm-hmm. collectible like disney snow globe but then you could be like a Lakers player or something inside. Exactly. And then actually, That's if so you were fun. outside, if you were doing some sort of activity that put you in front of other people, that is a, probably a pretty good outfit for keeping yourself safe because you're literally in a bubble. Yep. Great ideas. It. Well, thank you both so much for letting me. Well, first of all, thank you for marrying me. You're so welcome. And second of Aww. all, thank you both for letting me uh, back on the podcast. Um, of course. Hopefully, there's, hopefully it's not just life, major life events. <laughs> That allow me to come back on. The next what was one the is, first one? Was it when you were engaged? Next, yeah. Yeah. But if that's the case, the next one will be in nine months because. Oh, that's how we're getting a cat. The oh. cat. Both of us are like, the cat? Damn. The cat? <laughs> is there something I don't know? <laughs> Have a great show, ladies. Break a leg. Oh, thanks, Nick. So nice. See you on another side. On another on side. On another side. Yeah. I was hoping that was going to go under the radar. Go again. Nope. That was I, that was intentional. Why? Because that's my tagline to sign up. <laughs> another, another side. The open see is was that side, and the close is see oh. you on another side. Nick's own side. He's got his own side. Oh, and oh, he's on mic. Bye, Corinne. Talk Goodbye. to you later. Love you. Wow. Okay, love you. <laughs>
I love when Nick comes on because it doesn't matter if you give him three days notice or if you give him 10 minutes notice. He writes a script. He prepares. He's so ready. He's so ready. I mean, let's be honest. He's definitely like thinking about what his next next uh, piece is right now. Yeah. He like he pretends that he's he's making notes and stuff, but really they already exist in the notes on his phone. Like he's prepped it far in advance. So far in advance. He's just rereading his notes to to be fresh. Yeah. I love it. Oh, love him. He's great. What a great guy. Great guy. Great guy. Great husband. Top tier. Well, I feel like Nick had a lot of Halloween costume ideas, and I feel like I should just save mine for the next episode because he gave I so mean, many and they were so great. That works. We could do that because right. we're already 30 minutes in. It's Nick's Halloween costumes, and next time it'll be ours. <laughs> oh, gosh. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Wow. All right. Here we are. I feel like we've already done a whole episode, but that's just because Nick talked for so much of it. Thank you, Nick. 35 (laughs) minutes in. Well, this is a fun one. I feel like this is very Halloween because it reminds me of the movie The Mummy, which is one of like the first, I consider it horror movies that I've ever seen because it terrified me and I had to sleep with the lights on and read uh, Curious George every night before I went to bed because I was so scared of it. Oh, that's so cute. This kind of reminds me of like Night at the Museum too, because it's yeah. so it's so far back in history that we're going today. I know. It's so fascinating. We are doing ancient Egyptian haunts. Ancient Egypt. So spooky. So fun and spooky. And Kristen, my friend at the Stanley, please don't judge me because you probably have so much more expertise in this. And, and uh, honestly, when I was talking to her, I was like, wow, she's so smart. I was mesmerized. Yeah. Well, yeah. Disclaimer. We uh, have none of those skills. We just love stories, and that's why we're here to tell you. Yes. I'm first, which I'm glad because I think yours is going to be so sweet, and so I'm so excited to hear yours second. Oh, great. What did you do? Okay. Well, I have this whole little intro right now, so here I go, falling into it right now. (laughs) So ancient Egypt is Fascinating, I think, for a number of reasons. One of them being the relationship that ancient Egyptians had with the spirit world. Mm -hmm. So they did not really find the idea of death or ghosts spooky, like we do, but rather it was part of their culture. Uh, They wanted to ensure that any restless spirits were helped, that they could return to the afterlife. They wouldn't return back to Earth. And Egyptians would spend a lot of time and effort properly burying their dead and caring for the tombs with gifts and offerings and moments of remembrance. It was just so super, super beautiful. And the tomb was actually considered the house of the spirit. And if a tomb was forgotten about 
or if the rites were uh, improperly observed, the spirit would return from the afterlife, searching for peace again. So while spirits weren't really spooky, the presence of a spirit, if it was either summoned or if it was out there or if it returned because the tomb wasn't quite right, or if they even came and visited someone in a dream, it was considered a bad sign. So Mm -hmm. even though it wasn't spooky, it was still like something is off. And even though the presence of a spirit could mean bad things, the Egyptians still actually practiced communicating with the dead, often seeking the deceased's advice when dealing with certain problems or just trying to get like a second opinion on a big decision they were about to make, which I love. It's like it's like phoning a friend, calling a neighbor, talking (laughs) to your therapist. Phone a ghost. Should I should I build a new house? Let me ask the spirit world. (laughs) I'm into it. Okay, so now Everyone could seemingly communicate with spirits through dreams or from what I read, it sounds like communicating with spirits through dreams was much more common. So more people had those experiences and more people had the ability to communicate with spirits through dreams. That was kind of like the normal medium. But uh, there were some other mediums. There were dream deciphering, but just because everyone could or a lot of people would be visited by spirits through dreams didn't mean that they had the tools or the knowledge to really decipher what happened. So in ancient Egypt, they had specific wise women who took on the role of seers. So not only would they decipher the dreams, but they would also tell you the future. And they used many forms of divination, sometimes interpreting dreams, but other times they would write letters to the dead. They would practice magic. They would attempt to channel the spirit. It was just, they were like, OG, you know? They were great. That's so cool. Pretty badass women. I know. I love it. The fact that it dates that far back too and that it was a practice that was so key to their society, so fascinating. Right. And I feel like, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to be cultured here, but I feel like a lot of the burial rites and just like the ceremony over respecting and observing your loved ones and being with other loved ones and and just all of the wonderful sentiment around death in ancient Egypt – It's not unlike what I've heard of a lot of other cultures today, like especially I'm specifically thinking about like Central and South America and a lot of Mm -hmm. their traditions. And I'm just like, it's so nice. And I want to normalize it. Yeah, it feels it feels right. (laughs) You know, I agree. And that's why I feel like we have this amazing little community that believes that as well. So here we are. We're talking about ancient Egypt. We have so much respect for the dead and So did the ancient Egyptians. Spirits were a part of their normal conversation. And so that is why I chose to cover the best known ghost story from ancient Egypt. It is so popular that it's often referred to as, quote, a ghost story. So just imagine being the ghost in that story where it's like, you've made it. You're famous. Like, you are the ghost story. Do you think that's how our ghost feels? It's the ghost from the ghost podcast. What if it's the same ghost? That would be shocking, but it could happen. I think Leia's trying to tell us right now that she's actually the ghost reincarnated and she's with you here today Hi, to guest star on the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> she's just jealous. She's like, what about me? Nick was on here what for so me? long. Aw. Okay. So I'm going to preface this by saying that this is a lot less of a really like a, a true ghostly encounter and more of just sort of a theological look into ancient Egyptians and their practices and storytelling. So this is a story that they shared amongst them themselves and told. And so it's it's probably something that you're more likely to hear in theology class than around a campfire. 
but it's still super fascinating and I love history sometimes. I'm excited. So I'm going to try really hard not to butcher the names, but I did look up the names and there were no resources to tell me how to say them. So I'm just going to try to go phonetically. Okay. Okay. Well, this is the story of Amun Konsmab and the ghost, and it is a very old story. I can't wait. It is so old that it's said to date back to the Ramasad period, which was from 1186 to 1077 BCE. Wow. So you're like, okay, well, how did this ghost story get passed down for generations and generations? The story is over 3,000 years old. Well, it is because the story actually had been written down by ancient Egyptians on some pottery. There's four different pieces of pottery, in fact, that have been found. And in the 1960s, a lot of this was found and around that time. And fragments of the pottery were taken and put together and studied. And over the next few decades, scholars would examine the story and the medium that it was found on. And four pieces, those four pieces that hold each a different section of the story, are housed in museums in Paris, Florence, Vienna, and Turin. Each one of them telling a different piece of the story. I wish I figured out, like, which piece is in what museum so that you can go, like, chronologically in order. But I'm sure it's easy to find on the internet. Right. But it's – so all these scholars, they're studying these pieces, these four pieces that have been found. And it's up for debate still about how old the pieces are. But some believe that the the story actually comes from the time that was – uh, the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, which predates the Ramesside period, meaning that this story, a ghost story, could be over 4,000 years old. Damn. So I'm going to tell you a story that's 4,000 years old about this guy, Amun, and his ghost. That is truly the most famous ghost. I mean, the story has been around for 4,000 years. So th- tell me an older about an older ghost. 4,000 years. It's crazy. Think about it. When we talk about ghosts, we're talking about like, oh, it goes from the 1600s. It goes from the 1800s. And we're like, it's so long ago. <laughs> well, this is longer. So <laughs> by quite a lot. By quite a lot. We're not great at math over here, but we know that's a big difference. Not great at math, but I'm pretty sure mammoths still roamed the earth. <laughs> that's probably such a lie. <laughs> Actually, I don't know, though. I don't know anything. <laughs> When the Ice Age movies take place. Hold on, let me Google this. When did mammoths roam the earth? I feel like I'm right, but I also feel like I'm wrong. Oh, you know what? I'm not wrong. So it, you're right. I'm actually right. Wow. Wow. Okay. You're brilliant. So, <laughs> the vast majority of woolly mammoths died out at the end of the last Ice Age, which was about 10,500 years ago. But there was also a population of mammoths that were trapped on Wrangell Island and they lived there until about 3,700 years ago. So if this Whoa. ghost story is 4,000 years ago, woolly mammoths were around for like 300 more years. So this is old, you guys. This is old, old, old. And I can't believe we were only like 3,000 years away from being able to hang out with woolly mammoths. Ugh. Born in the wrong time. You want to be existing in the time of the Ice Age? Yeah. Or no, just 3,000 years ago on Wrangell Island. I just can't believe you would ever want to live in a in that era with the way you feel about hygiene i know but if it's just me and the mammoths like i'm not talking about other humans being there that wasn't part of the plan there's a common thread here you like to live with hairy animals (laughs) interesting (laughs) i need to talk to my therapist about this maybe you maybe you were like a mammoth or a bigfoot in a past life and that's why (laughs) 
so weird. Oh, I'm Let's really questioning my self-identity right now. <laughs> Why am I like this? I don't know. All right. But just as I'm affected by uh, your comment, Sabrina, right now, Amun <laughs> was really affected by his encounter with the spirit. Okay. So this ghost story, like I said, is possibly just that. It might just be a ghost story. But the written text and the age of the story makes it very special to ghost story enthusiasts like ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this ghost story called A Ghost Story highlights a priest named Amun, like I told you, and Amun encounters a restless spirit in the cemetery in Dir al Medina near Thebes. So Amun is just like, what is happening when he comes in contact with the spirit? And also, let me just preface this by saying there are two interpretations of the text. So one is that someone else came in contact with the spirit and essentially went to Amun for help. The other is that Amun just came in contact with the spirit himself. But I'm going to tell you the version that only includes Amun. We're not including the second party. Or mm-hmm. third party. So Amun encounters the spirit, and the spirit is trapped on Earth. The spirit could not find the light. It is wandering restlessly around for eternity in the cemetery. So Amun is like, oh no, what's happening to the spirit that he's seeing? And he decides to do something about it. So he goes home, and then from his house, he calls upon the spirit that he saw in the cemetery. And he urges the spirit to come to him and to identify himself. Amun's like, hey, Don't be afraid. Come show yourself. I will help you out. I will build you a new monument for the cemetery. I will give you gifts. I will give you nice things. I'll take care of you. I'll help you move on. Just let me know who you are and what you need and how I can help you. And so the spirit is like, wow, spirit shows up. This sounds great. Spirit (laughs) appears and says that his name is Nebusamek. And Amun asks Nebusamek what's wrong and why he's still there. And Nebusamek is like, well, my tombstone, it's fallen. No one brings me offerings anymore. Everyone's forgotten about me. It's like I don't even matter. No one knows who he is. He's cold. He's exposed. He's hungry. He's scared. And he thinks that soon his soul will just become entirely, essentially like evaporated into nothing. He's like, if no one remembers me and no one knows what's happening and I feel so sick and I feel so ill, like I'm just – eventually i'm just gonna go poof like my soul won't even continue on so he's devastated that's so sad i know and he was like well i was so important when i was he said that he was a lieutenant of the army the king had even given him gifts when he had passed away so he was an important guy he was loved and he had people who loved him around him after his death but now no one cares he's lost his purpose others have forgotten about his importance and He's just devastated. And this actually – Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I just had a thought because we were just talking about Halloween and, and movies. But this actually – I just watched Halloween Town again. And now I'm realizing that he kind of reminds me of when Aggie Cromwell, when she, mm-hmm. someone – one of the kids is imitating a ghost. And she's like, oh, ghosts are actually very depressed creatures. It's more like, <laughs> Like crying yeah. and sobbing. Yeah. It just reminds yeah. me of that because – Nebusmek is really giving off these super sad vibes. Well, yeah. I mean, we've talked about how spirits tend to stay behind if they have unfinished business or are confused or lost, you know? So it makes sense right. they're sad. And- yeah. And so, of course, Amun was feeling really super sorry for Nebusmek's spirit. And he's like, look, I will help you. I will fix up your graveyard spot. I will bring you gifts. I will do what should have been done for you this whole time. And Nubismek's like, eh, I don't know. Seems a little late for that. So, <laughs> Wait, you were just asking for it, he's, man. He's really hot and cold, this guy. He said, quote, 
from the uh, English translation of this more ancient script. Of what use are the things you would do? Unless a tree is exposed to sunlight, it does not sprout foliage. And Amuna's like, okay, I get it. I can't make you a perfect home like you once had or should have had. I can't undo the things that have been done. But let me call upon the people that work with me. Let me call upon my servants. They'll stop by daily. They'll give you food, water, gifts. Like, it will be great. Just trust me. Yeah. But the spirit of Nabusamek is still super sad. So what gives? Then he just disappears. But our man, Amun, is like, I won't forget what he told me. I won't forget what I promised him, even though he wasn't too uh, eager to accept my offering. So Amun sends some of his servants to search out for the tomb and the ruins in the cemetery that he'd first seen the spirit and try to find exactly where the tomb is so that they can help. And so the servants go, they search around, and they find it. And they all celebrate. They're like, yay, woohoo, we found the tombstone. Woo-hoo. We can finally redo Nabusamek's home and he will be at peace. And so they're all super stoked. And then Amun heads back down to the cemetery. And then what happens next is unknown. Oh, my gosh. And this is what's <gasps> sad because the rest of the text has yet to be discovered. It is lost to history. So the last sentence known on the script is, quote, he returned in the evening to sleep in the ne and t dot 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 and that's it and the ne like ne stands for necropolis which is the cemetery so it's thought that this high priest amun returned to the place where he first met the spirit nebusmek to let him know that he's done right by him and that you know he can finally rest but we'll never truly know how the tale ends unless a an archaeologist discovers the rest of the text b someone taps into their own past lives from this time period in this exact region, and they find the story, whether they're a part of the story or they just search the grounds and remember. Ugh, we need that. Or C, we wait for the reincarnate of the original storyteller to remember once again. Or D, we all die, and when we get to heaven, we ask, we have two questions, and this is one of the questions we want to get the answer to. <laughs> wait, this is, wait, this is so off topic. I'm sorry, but again, TikTok reference. <laughs> Someone made a video. It was hysterical, and it was it was them. They were playing their uh, family, just like crying and so sad after their death. And then it shows them like in the spirit world, and it's super aggressive. And they're running and like finding John Benet Ramsey, and it's like, who killed oh, you? Oh my gosh, that is what I imagine it to be. Yeah, I'm gonna get all the answers. There's no morning. The second we get over, we're like, we've got we've got a yeah. whole to do list. Now. It's a bucket list, but it's a bunch of questions that we have about life. It's our ghostly bucket list, yeah. But until the rest of this text is discovered, we won't quite know whatever came of Amun and the ghost of wow. Nabusamek. And so while the ancient Egyptians had many sacred practices surrounding burials and respecting those who died, ensuring those who were dead were honored and that no one came back from the afterlife, and that this story is honestly probably a great ghost story that was told to educate fellow ancient Egyptians on their culture and traditions, it also makes you wonder. Was there truly a restless spirit wandering the necropolis in Deir el Medina that inspired this ghost story? I believe it. There was a ghost. There was a ghost. I mean, think about it. Like, it's it's history and tradition and culture, but also history that they they practiced speaking with the dead. So some things have not been lost to history. Wow. So it wouldn't surprise me if half of the story is, is – uh, based in reality from other people's experiences. Wow. I want to know the end of the story. 
I know. I know it's such a cliffhanger, but it's like, it's still worth telling because it's probably the oldest ghost story we'll ever find. That's so fascinating. Yeah. It's great. I do wonder, like, if you if you research what's the oldest ghost story known to humankind, if that's what it is. Or did cavemen also tell ghost stories in their own way? Mm, I know. We need to now look into hieroglyphics. And they saw the ghost of Corinne as a woolly mammoth or as a Bigfoot. <laughs> and we'll finally get the answers. What's this woolly mammoth with big eyelashes <laughs> over here? Oh, my God. Okay, I just Googled what's the oldest ghost story. And? And the first thing that came up was this story. Oh. Wow. What's that noise? I don't hear anything. You okay? <gasps> I don't know. Is it the ghost? I'm fine. I don't know. It sounded like my door kind of opened, but it's locked. It's fine. I mean, I can see that my door is closed in the window reflection. It's not open. It just, suddenly the sound of it happened. Okay. So. Nervous. Perhaps Nabusamek is here with us today. <laughs> he wants to finish telling the story. I finally have the fifth key. The final sentences. Wow. All right. So your story actually leads very, very nicely into mine because so what's so interesting is like with ancient Egyptian stories and information, it's all based upon things that archaeologists have found and discovered in, you know, in their digs and tombs. And there's just so much that's unknown about ancient Egypt and like who people were and who they were related to. And I just think that's so fascinating that like something like that, a story can just get lost, lost underground. Mm -hmm. and, and then also, you know, it's pots and, and all these pieces of, of, well, artwork that we consider now, but you know, they, they were functional purpose, all purpose items for themselves that probably some of them could have broken and, Maybe we'll never discover them, which I just think is so fascinating. And yeah. we only – the story I'm about to tell you, the only way they know any of this information is basically because they found a tomb and did an archaeological dig. So this is the story of King Tut's curse and how Howard Carter unleashed it upon the world. Okay, that sounds terrifying. The word unleashed? Unleashed it. Yeah, no. It's a little scary. This is a story of King Tutankhamun, but – like I said, King Tut for short. And I didn't make that up. That's just what he's called. Uh, because <laughs> everyone agrees it's very hard to say. So King Tut was an ancient Egyptian pharaoh who ruled from 1334 BC to 1325 BC. And much of what is known about King Tut has been gathered through, like I said, archaeological research after his mummified remains were discovered in 1922. So what they learned was that King Tut was the son of Akhenaten, the previous pharaoh, and there was some debate over who his mother actually was. And when his remains were found in the tombs, they did DNA testing in an attempt to determine his lineage. And DNA proved that his mother was his father's full sister, a.k.a. his aunt. Okay. So, yeah. So, got it. Akhenaten had sex with his sister, and together they birthed King Tut. Incest. Yep. Which, uh, uh, in reading about uh, King Tut... I learned that that was actually common practice in ancient Egypt because they were very, they wanted to keep their bloodlines pure and felt they believed the way to do that was to sleep with family members. Is King Tut, I forget, there was a, they had done like a reconstruction yep. of, he's the one that has a lot of deformities from yep. the- I was just about to get into that. Incest. Yeah, okay, gotcha. Yeah. And didn't he, didn't he also like marry his sister? <laughs> Uh, his half-sister. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. Yep. I'm they here. I remember a few things. The family. 
Um, yeah, I feel like King Tut, a lot of people learned about in school because there's so much known about him um, because of this archaeological dig, actually. But um, yeah, and they were based on his mummified corpse. There were like three different countries that did reconstructions of what his face looked like. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was either London or Paris who that fi- theirs is the final image of what we now know as King Tut. But all three were were very similar based on the bone structure that they had from the mummy. So like I said, or like you said, Corinne, because of incest, King Tut was unfortunately born with a few birth defects, which were discovered once his remains were. So he was physically disabled by a deformity on his left foot. He had bone neuroses and he had to use a cane. And so in his tomb, there were like 50 plus canes that were discovered in there. And he also had scoliosis. Oh, man. And what's pretty crazy is that he was eight or nine years old when his father died and he ascended to the throne. <gasps> How? So he was really young. How, who is even making the decisions at that point? He, so he had like a someone who, I don't know, I can't remember the word, but it was um, his like advisor, essentially, who he mm. ruled and was advised by. Gotcha. So he was the ruler, but, you know, probably wasn't making all the decisions himself. But could you imagine mm-hmm. at eight or nine years old, you are now the king of Egypt? No, I can't imagine that. And I can't imagine, like, I wonder if there was a bunch of pressure or what it was like for such a young right. ruler, what was expected of him. And also, I just feel horrible that he had to go through or that anyone, you know, has to ever go through anything that inhibits their movement or yeah. or just yeah, mobility. Tough. But especially like, okay, you're talking about what, 13 hundred bce mm-hmm. like that is there was no medicine <laughs> no no yeah and and he also like uh, i don't know but keep in mind also i feel like in ancient egypt no one was living very long true i mean weren't we like drilling holes through the noses into the skulls to like let the brains out was that in egypt am i making that up too you know what i believe everything i say now because i was right about m- mummies i mean mammoths <laughs> that's what they were doing in like the 60s that's even they were doing not the sixties, but uh, what's it called? Um, oh, lobotomies. Lobotomies. Are you of? That's lobotomy. I'm thinking of. I feel like they did something to either get the brain out or like the spirits out or something in ancient practices. There are a lot of ancient practices. We could probably do a whole episode on that, but oh, I'm not yeah. that familiar with them. But so King Tet, yeah, he's eight or nine years old. He ascends into power and he ruled for ten years. Um, and he was remembered for restoring the ancient Egyptian religion after his father had dissolved it. And he restored all these monuments that were destroyed in his father's era. And he moved the capital from Akhenaten to Thebes, Egypt. And he married his half-sister. And he had two daughters who unfortunately did not survive infancy. And their bodies were discovered in another tomb. And it was determined that the first baby was born prematurely at like five months into the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And then the second child didn't live past past like nine months or something like that oh wow that's awful yeah so in studying king tut's remains they were able to find that he suffered from malaria multiple times and it's believed that this infection combined with his other disorders led to his death when he was 18 or 19 years old so he really didn't live a very long life um and probably wasn't a very easy life and it's believed that he died very unexpectedly because his remains were found in an unusually small tomb considering his status which they believe means that, like, he died unexpectedly and that his tomb, his, like, more grandiose royal tomb was not yet completed. So he was buried in a different tomb mm. that was intended for someone else. And his tomb was robbed at least twice. 
and based on the items taken, including perishable oils and perfumes and the evidence of restoration, it's likely that these robberies took place within several months after his burial. And then after that, the tomb basically was never touched again. Wow. And over the years, because this tomb wasn't intended as the royal tomb, it kind of became forgotten. And houses and buildings and much other, like, workers' places were built on top of this tomb, which just, like, completely cascaded and hid the entrance to it. And so after that, ancient Egyptian society just moved on, and his tomb became forgotten and... It wasn't until 1922 that his tomb was finally rediscovered by a man named Howard Carter. So a little bit of information about Howard. He was an English archaeologist and Egyptologist who was noticed at a young age for his artistic abilities and was sent to Egypt to assist experts who were excavating Middle Kingdom tombs. So he was sent there kind of as an assistant and he would detail it like in extreme detail, like draw and record everything that was found in these tombs. And eventually he went to schooling for it and then worked for the Antiquities Service. And in 1907, he went to work for a man named George Herbert, who was the Lord Carnarvon. And he, George, wanted to excavate the tombs of the noble in ancient Egypt. But unfortunately, someone else had the like concession or the rights to dig it up. But then in 1914, that other guy's concession expired and Lord Carnarvon George Herbert received the concession to dig in the Valley of the freaking Kings in ancient Egypt, which is like, what? Big deal. Even Leia cares. Yeah. George and Howard spent years on site excavating tombs and coming up with very, very little. And it was 1922 and George Herbert was just ready to like give up. But on November 4th of 1922, the water boy in their site stumbled upon a stone that like crumbled and like gave way to this other entrance and it turned out to be the top of a hidden set of stairs. So Howard Carter's like super excited, like what did we just find? And he starts slowly excavating the stairs, which is like a very slow and, you know, delicate process because you can't ruin anything and you're not you're not sure what you're going to find. And finally, he finds a doorway with a bunch mm-hmm. of indistinct hieroglyphics on it. And can you imagine his excitement? I oh know. my god. After, like, years, too, from 1914 to 1922, years of not really finding anything of note, and his boss is just about to give up, and he finds this thing, and he's just like, oh, my God, what have I stumbled upon? And so he calls George Herbert, his boss, and on November 23rd, 1922, Carter, Herbert, and Herbert's whole family, basically, start to slowly chisel through the corner of the doorway just enough to shine a, like, candlelight through into the tomb. And they found, when they shone the light, it hit all these expensive, fancy jewels and gold. And they were like, (gasps) oh, my God. You found treasure. We found treasure. Like, this is a legit treasure hunt, basically. And it took them probably, like, three or four months to, like, finally be able to open up the door So on February 16th of 1923, they finally opened the door and discovered the sarcophagus of King Tut that had spent 3,000 years uninterrupted and lost beneath the ancient city, which was just the most incredible archaeological find in years. And it set the world afire. The press flocked to the tomb and it sparked this renewed interest in ancient Egypt and Carter and everyone involved were thrilled and they were like, this is going to bring us unimaginable success and wealth. But 
they should have paid more attention to the hieroglyphs on the entrance to the tomb because it is believed to say, death shall come on swift wings to him who disturbs the peace of the king. And had they known this, perhaps they would have prevented the tragedies that were to befall them and many others who were tangentially related to this tomb and this discovery. But they did not heed the warning, and upon opening the tomb, the curse of King Tut was unleashed. And of course, with all paranormal and supernatural stories, there's lots of controversy in regards to this curse, and a lot of people who deny its existence and and kind of say that all of these deaths and stories are coincidence and not really related to a curse by Mm. any means. But I'll let you decide, because within like 10 years of opening King Tut's tomb, nine people who were present with Carter or tangentially related to Carter and George Herbert died of illness, were murdered, died by suicide, or had like really terrifying freak accidents happen to them. That feels like a lot. I don't know how many people are on the site normally, but... There there probably were upwards of 50 people who probably stepped into that tomb within those years just based on like, you know, photographers or newspaper reporters and people there working to excavate the site. But still, that's a good amount of people. That's, yeah, that's like a fifth of the people there. Yeah, and a lot of them are directly related to Howard Carter and uh, George Herbert, who were the two people leading this excavation. So maybe it's more about the intent and the people who, like, intentionally went in there seeking it and opening the door. Mm. So two months after the tomb was opened, Lord Carnivan, George Herbert, was dead. And he was killed by blood poisoning from an infected mosquito bite on his cheek. So apparently he was at home shaving and cut the bite and then like within two days died from blood poisoning, which is apparently a very, very painful, gruesome death. And the death has an eerie tie to King Tut because apparently, and there's some question to like how King Tut like actually died. There were some deformities in his bones that like happened post-mortem. And then there were some other, you know, ailments to his body that like could have been accredited to a death but it's just unclear but anyway in an autopsy that was performed on the king tut's body there was a similar lesion found on his cheek to the lesion that ended up killing george herbert okay that's a little coincidental Mm -hmm. or too coincidental to not be taken as a sign yep and it was reported also that when george herbert died all of the lights in his home just like went out like that Mysterious. That's really scary. Yeah. And after that, the story of this curse just spread like wildfire. And I mean, almost literally, because the next person affected by the curse was affected by a fire. So after the discovery of the tomb, Howard Carter gifted some of the findings to his friends. And one of those friends was Sir Bruce Ingham. And Carter gave him a mummified hand that was wearing a bracelet with an inscription that read, Cursed be he who moved my body. Well, it was moved across countries, and to Sir Bruce Ingham. And Bruce put it in his office, and a few days after that item was put in his house, his house just burnt to the ground. Just poof, burnt to the ground. And the cause of the fire was never determined, but Ingham finally rebuilt the home, and within days of finally completing the reconstruction of his home, it was hit by a massive flood and destroyed again. So while he did not die... People believe that because he was gifted items from the tomb, he was cursed as well. Oh, my gosh. The third victim of the curse was a man named George J. Gould, and he visited the tomb in 1923 and almost immediately became sick. 
He was hospitalized and never recovered and died of pneumonia a few months later. There's some people that theorize that this guy may have died from toxins within King Tut's tomb because a lot of ancient mummies have been known to carry dangerous species of mold and the tomb walls could have been riddled with bacteria that could have attacked his respiratory system. But why then didn't everyone else who was stepped in there get as sick as this man did? There's just a lot of questions. But they believe George J. Gold was the third victim of the curse. And this one was like listed in all of the sources that I found, but I'm less inclined to like believe it's totally attached to the curse, Mm -hmm. but I'll tell you it anyways, because it's very tragic. And for some reason, we like tragedy here. (laughs) So this is the death of Aubrey Herbert, who was George Herbert, Lord Carnivan's half-brother. So Aubrey was born with a degenerative eye condition and later in his life became blind. And a doctor diagnosed his rotten teeth as the reason that he lost his vision and so this doctor prescribed like let's remove every single one of your teeth and maybe you'll get your vision back so aubrey herbert goes into surgery and literally gets every single one of his teeth pulled from his head every single one oh my god and it did not bring his vision back and instead he got sepsis from the surgery and died five months after his half-brother george herbert did so people were like oh my gosh the brother of George Herbert died. Like, what if he was affected by the curse and died because his half-brother went and, and broke open King Tut's tomb and now released the curse and everyone in his family is now going to get affected by it. But he was the only other family member who died in such a strange fashion, so I don't know. Another sad death is that of Hugh Evelyn White, who helped excavate King Tut's tomb And after seeing so many of his fellow excavators die and, like, all the curse talk, he was, like, very kind of upset by his part in releasing this curse. And he died by suicide in 1924. And his suicide note read that I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. The sixth victim of the curse was an American Egyptologist. His name was Aaron Ember. And he was friends with many of those people who were present when the tomb was first opened, including George Herbert. And in 1926, Ember's Baltimore home caught a blaze, and his wife told him to go work, told him to go save the manuscript he was working on while she saved their son. But unfortunately, all three of them and the family maid perished in the fire. And it oh turns out that the manuscript he was working on was the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <sighs> then... It just, like, keeps going. There's so many people who were affected by this. Oh, my goodness. Uh, George Herbert's secretary, Richard Bethel, was found smothered to death in his room at an elite gentleman's club in London in 1929. And no one was ever caught or convicted for Bethel's murder. And it was learned that Bethel was the third person inside King Tut's tomb. So it was George Herbert, Howard Carter, and then this man, Richard Bethel. So people started to theorize that he died also because of the curse. Wow. Another person to mysteriously die was Sir Archibald Douglas Reed. He never stepped foot in the tomb, but he was a radiologist and was in charge of X-raying King Tut's mummified corpse before it was given to a museum. So the day after Sir Archibald Douglas Reed X-rayed King Tut, he came down with some extremely deadly disease that was never diagnosed, and he died within three days before they could figure out what was wrong with him. The ninth victim was not a human— but a pet bird. No. So this canary belonged to a famous Egyptologist, James Henry Breasted, and he was working with 
Howard Carter when the tomb was opened, and shortly after, he returned home to find that his pet canary had been eaten by a cobra. A cobra. And the cobra was still within the bird's cage. Where did the cobra come from? Unclear. Not sure if he (laughs) owned the cobra or if the cobra, like, snuck into his home. Don't know. But the way that it seems, it seems like the cobra snuck into the home. I don't know. But anyway, a cobra was in the cage. The bird was dead. And since the cobra is a symbol of the Egyptian monarchy, it felt like a very bold and ominous sign. And then... Breasted himself didn't die until 1935, but he did die immediately after a trip to Egypt. And the very last person to die, who would have been very deeply connected to the curse, was Howard Carter himself. But he very angrily dismissed the existence of the curse, and he seemed, you know, he was very, very against it. He was like, there is no curse. There's nothing about that. And none of you know what you're talking about. Um And he spent upwards of 10 years documenting each of the 5,398 objects that were found in King Tut's tomb and eventually retired from archaeology and then fell into a life of solitude and later died from lymphoma at age 64. My goodness. So it's not clear if he was affected by the curse. Uh, He unfortunately was never really recognized for like in in form of an award for his findings of King Tut's tomb, which is like a huge historical find um so maybe that's the curse or he also died in solitude maybe that's the curse people have theorized all of these things but um yeah he died at age 64 and his tombstone says may your spirit live may you spend millions of years you who love thebes sitting with your face to the north wind your eyes beholding happiness and so perhaps the pharaoh saw it fit to spare him from the curse because he who almost sits on the throne because of this massive discovery. Wow. Still, too many people. Way too many people. So many people. Had really, like, awful, devastating deaths, too. I feel like there was, it was, like, pain and surprise. It wasn't just, I mean, I don't know what I'm thinking of that would be better, but I feel like there was just a lot. Like, it was a very eventful death for everyone. And, like, if they were, okay, like, I don't, like, Howard Carter died many, many, many years after his discovery, right? So, like, Mm -hmm. I understand how, like, that's not connected to the curse, maybe. But so many of these other people died within, like, a month of interacting with the tomb for the first time or interacting with King Tut's body for the first time. Like, that radiologist who died the day after, or, like, came became ill the day after he x-rayed the corpse is so off-putting and too coincidental to not be something more. Right. So is there, I wonder if there's any anything else. Like I'm thinking of the Hope Diamond and how you kind of just need to keep it in one spot or else something will happen to someone. So I wonder if this curse has almost continued at all with anyone who has. Yeah. Or, or will continue with those who work on the tomb or around the tomb. Or if wherever his mummified corpse is. Yeah. Everybody be careful. I wonder if that museum is haunted. I know. I feel like this is one of those things that when you're going to school to become an archaeologist, like you would never think the greatest danger on the job is going to be the curse of an ancient Egyptian that would result in my death. Like that's Does that cross your mind? I don't know. <laughs> I'd be like, it's really hot out. There's a lot of dust. You're in the elements. You could get caved in. Yeah, but that's come to the territory of that job. Yeah. But perhaps the scariest thing is... The curse that will follow you. It's like Final Destination, but Egypt style. 
I kind of want to rewatch the movie The Mummy because I'm pretty sure this story helped inspire that movie. The story of King Tut's curse. I don't think I've ever seen The Mummy. You haven't? No. Oh my gosh, Corinne, you've never seen the bugs that crawl into your skin and like eat you alive Ew. from the inside? <laughs> no. I've never seen The Mummy. Who's in it? What is – I mean, I remember that it was a ride that I didn't go on. I have to see where I can watch this. Let me let me look it up. Oh, it looks like it's on Hulu. Okay, I'll watch it on Hulu. Okay, should we watch it together so we can talk about it? Because I haven't <gasps> yes. watched it since I was terrified of it, so I don't I'm know done. if it's going to trigger any anything in me. Do you want to watch it as in, like, we'll FaceTime each other and watch it? Or do yeah. you want to just, like, watch it the same No, we day? have to, like, have – I'll seat you on my couch next to me. And you can, like, be looking at my reactions, and I'll be looking at your reaction. Okay, I'm down. <laughs> we'll go three, Ooh. two, one, play. <laughs> oh, okay. Brendan Fraser was in it. Man, Brendan Fraser had some good roles. George of the Jungle, hubba hubba. <laughs> I'll watch it. <laughs> That's your reason for watching it. <laughs> for me, it's, like, a challenge for myself to see if I overcame this, like, traumatic experience I had as a child and you're like I just want the hot man oh Brendan Fraser hello (laughs) mommy as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when I was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Ooh, story time. Story time. Man, I just love listener stories. Me too. Okay, although I feel like we need more people to email us about haunted mummies, haunted museums, haunted Egyptian items or stories because... We're limited in those. Right. And we're also here as a heads up to our Patreon donors. We're going to do a little facelift of our Patreon shortly, sometime soon, so you'll get a heads up. But I, one of the things we're going to start doing again, which we used to do, was give a little sneak preview of, hey, this is what we're going to cover in a week or a couple weeks. So it'll give more opportunity, I think, Ooh. for people to write in and write in. send us some relevant stories. Yes, that's a good idea. All right. So I am reading... A story from Chris. It is called Brian Weiss is one of the most amazing people I've ever met. <gasps> She's met him? She has. Okay. We finally found someone. So cool. Hello, ghostesses. I just finished episode 98 and was so thrilled Corinne picked Past Life Regression and Dr. Brian Weiss as her story. He is one of the most wonderful, amazing, gracious, kind, and compassionate people I've encountered in my life. So... Back in the mid-90s, after college, I moved from the upper Midwest to Miami to work my first real back-office job for a major, now-defunct bookstore chain. I had the privilege of meeting so many different celebrities who came through for book signings. Miami, though, is home to just tons and tons of amazing authors. Many of them would just come to stop by the store and sign their books that graced our shelves. Dr. Weiss was one of those authors who'd stop by regularly 
And he had extra motivation to stop in the store as his son worked with us. Wait, oh how my God. fun. So fun. I'd been in Miami for a few months and I was miserable. I wasn't <laughs> sleeping well. It was always hot and humid, which made me more miserable. I had a hard time exercising. I love outdoor walks and bike rides. And I would just sweat thinking about leaving my apartment. And it was all starting to wear on me. One day, Dr. Weiss came in to touch base on a book signing event we were going to do for the new release of one of his new titles. And as we were chatting, I'll never forget just how kindly he asked if I was sleeping well as I looked a little bit run down. Now, mind you, I was starting to look like a raccoon during the first week of rehab. Crazy bags, rings under my eyes, pale and just worn. In other words, I felt and I looked like crap. So I told Dr. Weiss that, no, I hadn't been sleeping well. I wake up every hour. I'm run down. My brain just won't turn off. Then he did the most amazing thing. He told me to stop by his office and he'd give me a setup of his regression tapes. Yes, cassette tapes. This was circa mid-90s after (laughs) all. That he provides his patients with to help them prepare for the regression sessions. He chatted about it a bit and he point blank told me that I'm not really a regression candidate as I was too strong-willed to give up control for hypnosis. <laughs> and back then, that was true. But now I think I might be ready. Really, if I can get a chiropractor to crack my neck, why wouldn't I give up control to hypnosis? Honestly, so true. Yeah. But the tapes would help calm my mind and maybe help with relaxation and meditation. How amazingly kind was that? So I picked up the tapes, and you can find those same meditations at Hay House. And to this day, 25 years later, after converting tape to CD to MP3 and losing the files and finding them at Hay House, (laughs) I still use the meditations regularly. His voice is amazing and regression is so calm and soothing. One of the things you talked about during the episode was that maybe going through regression could actually be opening yourself up to being taken over by some sort of entity. Having experienced these meditations, which are pre-hypnosis, Dr. Weiss does a wonderful job of setting up safety, guiding you to surround yourself by beautiful healing light, surrounding yourself in warmth. And if you follow along, you're pretty much placing yourself into a protective cocoon. One of my other interesting stories I have about Dr. Weiss is that he came into the store again, and I had a chance to chat with him briefly. Knowing that I wasn't a regression candidate, I asked him about a theory I had. And surprisingly, he told me that it was interesting. All of my life, I found myself obsessed with different time periods of history. From about 11 to 21, I was totally obsessed with ancient Egypt and Greece. I studied it. I read everything I could about it. And then one day, I woke up with zero interest, and I started obsessing about the Celts for a hot minute, about two years. And then I became interested in ancient Japanese traditions, especially Shinto. I told him that I thought that when my interest in certain areas stopped— And I mean stopped cold, like I wake up one day with zero interest any longer, that it signified when I died in that life. To this day, I believe that theory to be proving itself out, at least for me. After I moved away from Miami, I became obsessed with Tudor England, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, and everything in between. And that was until my late 30s. And since then, I've been on a spirituality quest, not Wicca or witchcraft, but a look at natural beliefs, alternatives to Christianity, energy-based systems, etc., which draws me to a couple different eras simultaneously, the old alchemists and the turn of the 20th century spiritualists. So I speculate that I died around 20 to 21 in my ancient Egypt and Greek life. And though I may have, quote, died at an older age in my other past lives, there was something about the ancient life that was strong, powerful, and impactful that I obsessed about that era first. 
I think my Celtic life was pretty uneventful, but I died in my mid-20s. And then my English tutor period life, I feel like I was involved in some level of behind-the-scenes support for a minor minor political figure, maybe a duke or earl, not a king or queen, but was witness to a lot of craziness and political intrigue of that era. I think I lasted maybe until my late 30s before I croaked. (laughs) I totally believe in reincarnation and the recycling of souls. After all, we're all energy, and every action has an equal and opposite reaction. I find it all so fascinating. Though it's not a ghostly story, I thought it would still be fun to share just how wonderful Dr. Weiss is and my crazy theories. Chris. Wow. That's so fascinating. I mean, just to like dive that much into her past lives and to to really analyze and study them is so cool and admirable and makes me want to do it. Yeah. No, yeah. It's so interesting too. I like her theory a lot and I feel like it makes sense. I wonder if it's if it's like this is when you died and suddenly the interest is just faded or if that's when you fed your soul enough, your past life enough to have that sort of recognition right. and your soul feels complete and can move on to the next version of your life. Right. That's such a complex idea too. Like, yeah, like or maybe like something really meaningful or like a lesson was really pertinent to your soul in that time mm-hmm. period that she's like become engrossed in learning about it because yeah. those were like temple. it's like the it's like inside out but like instead of like family island and all that stuff it's like your soul has all these like islands based on what mm-hmm. happened in past lives and the like you kind of experience them in your current life as well and i just i just feel like if you have such an intense interest in one thing and that that interest could waver and change with such sort of band-aid rip that's it's unexpected and it's almost like weird to just suddenly have no interest in it i feel like that's gotta be a tell that's like okay yeah that was something significant that was a past life that's the era that you were in or the location you were in it's all these little breadcrumbs these little trails what if also there's like her all her past lives are guiding her current spirit and they are like something in researching those specific lives or like places were helpful to her in her life then. And so like they're guiding her to those studies to teach her a lesson or teach her something in her life. Yeah. It kind of is giving me both. I feel like this is a mix of Slumdog Millionaire and Candyland. (laughs) It's like you move to the next level, you forget about whatever, you just have to survive the gumdrop forest, (laughs) and you need to make sure that you're equipped and that all you call upon your whole life's experiences and your past soul, your past life experiences to do the best that you can in our present. Wow. Dang. So many questions, so many theories. Past lives are so fascinating. If you were King Tut in a past life, please email us like let us know or if you know the answer if you know the rest of the ghost story please tell us yes we're looking for you and your past lives (laughs) only you know the knowledge of your past lives Mm -hmm. you're the key you're the key to your own best self should i tell oprah that we're saying this stuff do you think she'd have us on i feel like this is inspirational you know (gasps) it's very deep but i don't know if there's much much substance that noise again is it the ghost breaking in oh you know what it is i have these I, i don't even remember what they're called like a radiator? I don't know. Oh, like yeah. the old and I'm not used to it's this is the first cold day, so I'm not used to them turning on and crackling and, and popping and, and stuff. Growl. Yeah. I have a story from Marissa. 
and it's called Dreams, Egyptian Gods, and a Werewolf. Oh my. Hello, beautiful ladies. First off, I want to say how much I love your podcast. I listen any chance I get, no matter the time of day, although I do prefer listening while there's a little light out. (laughs) I knew I would love it from the get-go, especially since you guys did your first episode on a haunted place that is in my home state. So greeting from Colorado. Wow, what a coincidence. We just talked about that. Mm -hmm. Before I get into my stories, there are a few things I would like for you to know. The first thing is that I come from a family of skeptics. My little brother and I often get called weird, in a nice way, for liking ghosts, which is an anything supernatural. The second thing is that I still believe in ghosts despite my science major and more specifically animal science. The last thing is that I know that my dreams are a little out there or in a weird setting, but to me it seems normal mostly because I've had dreams ranging from spiders and other things crawling to something that was very specific to Egyptian lore, and I have other stories that are not dreams, but those are for another time. Let's get into my dreams. My first dream that I really remember was when I was a kid, probably around middle school. In the dream, I remember walking around in what looked like a store of sorts and people were all around me. Why a store? I am not sure. So while walking through the store, I could feel the tension in the air and see that the people around me were anxious. And I kept asking, what's going on? Why is everyone so nervous? And one woman woman just shook her head and told me to keep an eye on the platform. And I turned around and I saw this huge platform that was fairly tall and had a room on top of it. Everything was painted black. And for whatever reason, I got the gut feeling that something terrible was about to happen. A few seconds later, I heard someone screaming and telling us to hide. Having no idea what was going on, I dropped down to the floor and crawled over to the rack of clothes. And then when I looked up on the platform, I saw people in a room with guns. At this point, I knew the people in the room were some of my family members, or at least that's what they looked like. This is something to remember for later. For whatever reason, I felt like I should look out and see what was going on. But that was my mistake. Because when I peered out, I saw glowing red eyes staring back at me, and I heard growling. In one swift leap, something had pulled me out of my hiding place and was on top of me. And the thing that I saw is something I will never forget for as long as I live. The thing that was on top of me looked like a wolfish looked like a wolf with jet black fur, long teeth and claws, and those red eyes. I knew it wasn't a normal wolf because this thing was taller than me and was sitting on its hind legs. I know, it sounds like a werewolf, and that is the best way for me to describe this thing that was sitting on my chest. Well, this werewolf started to claw and bite my body, and any flesh that was exposed was bitten and clawed. At this point, I woke up sweaty and panting, and I could still feel the pressure on my chest. After a while, I decided to go back to sleep, thinking that I wouldn't have the same dream again. But boy, was I wrong. The dream picked up right where it had left off, and this time I knew I wouldn't wake up until it was over. So this thing was clawing at me, clawing me to shreds, and I looked to the platform and screamed for my relatives to help me. But they just watched as this was happening. As fast as it started, the werewolf-like creature stopped attacking me and ran off. People finally started getting up and going about their business while I laid there in my own blood, and I knew no one would help me. They didn't while I was being attacked, so why would they help me now? Finally, I woke up and decided that sleeping was not the best option, and I decided instead to read my favorite magic treehouse book. (laughs) And while I waited for the sun come up, I could still feel the weight of some of the claw marks on my body. The second dream was a little more recent. The dream starts off with me being in ancient Egyptian clothing. I was walking inside of a pyramid, and around me I saw slanted ramps, and it was lit with lots of torches. I saw a man with dark hair and tannish skin tone, and there were a couple of people around him that I knew to be my friends. We saw him chained to the wall by his wrists and ankles, and we all decided to take him down. In the dream, I could sense that he he was my friend and that I wanted to help him. But when we did, he was coughing up a lot of blood, and he had holes through the palms of his hands from what were assumed to be nails. Here's where it gets kind of weird. 
As we helped this man down, I saw that someone had a dog, but it wasn't a dog, and he was petting it. It honestly looked like a smaller version of an Anubis. I told this person that he shouldn't do that, but human nature took over and he said that he would be fine and that his dog would protect him. All of a sudden, there was a screaming and there was a lot of smaller Anubi attacking everyone. I ran to see what, what else was going on and saw one of these dogs attacking a woman. I peered down one of the ramps and saw an orange glow, possibly a fire, coming up from the bottom. And as I looked up, I saw the way taller version of Anubis and glaring at me. His arms were crossed and it seemed like he was about to say something to me, but I woke up coughing my lungs out and choking. I consulted one of my friends because we were both really into paranormal stuff and the conclusion we came up with was a little rattling to say the least. It turns out my dream had a lot of similarities to the Egyptian end of the world myth. The myth goes that the god Set was unleashed from the underworld and went on a rampage causing destruction and chaos. Set often looks like Anubis and therefore why he looked the way he did. With looking like this, Set had captured Osiris tortures, and then kills him. And essentially, in my dream, it's believed that I had pissed off Set by setting Osiris free, hence me seeing him and his minions. And my cough was caused by a mixture of shock at the size of Set, as well as the smoke from the fires. Sorry for the long email, but I know you guys love details, and I hope you enjoyed my dreams. And yes, in the moment, I was scared of them, but now I kind of embrace them. Keep up the good work and see you on the other side, Marissa. All right, these are both really horrifying. Like a werewolf with red eyes and possibly the end of seeing the end of the world right like why did and also the dogs the common theme of the dogs attacking Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm trying to make sense of like in the dreams is she tapping into something that she shouldn't be like i'm wondering if she has this power to almost venture into another plane that Mm. is kind of all-knowing that there's no there's no filter and so she's seeing things but seeing it out of context seeing it without a timeline just seeing kind of the horror of it all and not and yeah. being yeah i also was wondering like with the past lives of it all like if there's any way way that like maybe she was part of writing the myth and that legend oh. of the god set and like maybe she experienced something in a past life so similar to that and helped write the story and continues to have that um because i mean if it really was a fear of the end of the world and how the world would end. Like mm-hmm. maybe that first dream is like the modern version of that. Like how, if it hasn't happened yet, because clearly we're all still here or so we yeah. believe, like maybe they cut the Did timing. Did you say, or so we believe? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows what's real? Um, but maybe like th- that dream is like the modern conception of that end of the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really interesting. That's interesting too. Just the idea that she, that not only would you remember or kind of visit a past memory, perhaps, or, or a nightmare um, of something that was from your old time period, but something that you were responsible for creating. Right. And now it's come back to haunt you. Yeah, scary. I mean, even if these are just like terrible, terrifying nightmares, it's horrifying to be like mauled by dogs and like yeah. – wake up and still like viscerally feel those feelings you were having in the dream is yeah, hell no awful this is like after i watched uh hannibal i just had nightmares of pigs eating me alive oh oh that's so scary that you're right that is a very scary part of that i think it's just like the lack of control and and yeah i i hate the feeling i'm envisioning it right now and i hate the feeling of being so out of control in your dream in a situation where it's almost like the end of a of a video game you know when you're playing a video game and 
you're playing Mario Kart or whatever and you go off the side and you're like, oh no, that's the end. And it just like shut. It's like a hard like, bloop, yeah, like it's done. Dead. That's what it feels like I've, in dreams, I feel like. Yeah. And there is something like usually, you know, when you come out of a dream and you go back to sleep, you do dream something else. But like to go back into it mm-hmm. is one of the worst, especially a nightmare. It's so scary. So scary. I hate that. <gasps> Yikes. Okay. Well, if any of you have knowledge of a past life an ancient egyptian past life please tell us um or if you have any ghost stories at all please email them to us at two girls one ghost podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you we really we also would. have a variety of ways to support us we have we have uh well we're on itunes and spotify and all those but if you could rate and review us on itunes that would be super super helpful if you could tell other people if you could represent that would be awesome on social media um we have merch, so you can always rock some of our merch or do whatever. We appreciate any bit of support you can give us. Just listening means a lot to us, and we're super yes. appreciative. Yes. And you can also follow us on social media. We have Instagram. We have Facebook. Our Facebook group is a huge group of super strong phantoms all together, and we have great moderators, and that's a really fun spot, especially during spooky season. And we will. Should we do it next? Another side? <laughs> On another side. (laughs) (laughs) See you on the other side. Very spooky. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.